It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I've got to. I've got to start with the quote of the day. This isn't even the most important quote of the day, but I can't resist. It's from the I alone can fix it guy, the former president of the United States. And I quote, this is one of many, many, many Trump posts, and we'll try to compress some of them. But this one is short and sweet. If CNN were smart, they'd open up a conservative network, only have me on, and it would be the most successful network in history. He goes on to say, Fox only made it because of me. Twitter only made it because of me. Um, when Donald Trump first ran for president in 2015, Fox News had been the biggest cable network, cable news network by far for about 13 years, long predates the time that I was at Fox. But Trump loves to take credit for the success or failure. But I just, CNN only have me on. What would the shows look like? Uh, Breakfast with Trump, Trump Gets Personal, uh, Noontime with Trump. Um, more Trump, the Trumpiest news hour. I don't know. I mean, you could, the possibilities are endless. Hope you have a good weekend coming up. Right now, uh, as we try to make 50 changes uh, to Media Buzz for Sunday, I hope you'll watch at 11 Eastern. Um, I mean, I could do a three hour show and not get to everything. That's how much is going on. Today, we will talk about the latest on the midterms. Um, the latest on Trump, going after a whole bunch of people. Um, Elon Musk, with Twitter just being in chaos right now, there's no other way to put it. Um, So all of that, coming up right now. (laughs) All right, so story number one. The Truth Social, I mean, I don't... I don't want to go too far and say Trump is someone saying Trump is having a meltdown. Let's just say if these were tweets, you would say it, it seems like he can't control himself, that he's just got so much to vent about. And by the way, in my inbox, I got an invitation last night to go to the Mar-a-Lago Club this coming Tuesday night, 9 p.m. Eastern, for a special announcement. I mean, it wasn't just for me. This is something that is sent out to all the media people. But it, it you know, had, this is how you can uh, apply to reserve your spot there. So all of these people, including Jason Miller, you know, key Trump advisor, he actually went on TV and said, I want Donald Trump to put off his presidential announcement until after the Georgia recount, the Georgia runoff. Um, Trump is, you know, middle finger. I'm doing it. By the way, the latest numbers, we'll get into this, from Nevada and from Arizona suggest the Georgia recount might not matter in terms of control of the Senate. They seem to be moving in the Democratic direction. Let me bring, let me come back to that. So, story number one, here's the 45th president of the United States. News Corp, which is Fox, well, it's part of the broader Fox empire, Uh, The Wall Street Journal and the no longer great New York Post, maybe it was that Trumpy Dumpty cover, is all in for Governor Ron DeSanctimonious, an average Republican governor with great public relations, 
See, he's only average. Who didn't have to close up his state, but did. Unlike other Republican governors, whose overall numbers for Republican were just average, middle of the pack, including COVID, and who had the advantage of sunshine where people from badly run states up north would go no matter who the governor was, just like I did. Okay, so he's hitting uh, uh, DeSantis for being just average. And he's criticizing his COVID response. I'm sure the governor, if he runs, I have no idea whether Ron DeSantis is going to do this, would be happy to compare and contrast his response to COVID to Trump saying it's just a few people, uh, it'll be gone by spring, uh, you might want to try this bleach thing. I mean, that he'd be happy to have that fight. Ron came to me in desperate shape in 2017. He was politically dead, losing in a landslide to a very good agriculture commissioner. Now, this part is basically true, that Trump's endorsement is responsible for DeSantis being governor of Florida, that he made DeSantis. Um, I, uh, he didn't know the other guys. He said, let's give it a shot. It was like a nuclear weapon that went off when I endorsed him. Uh, then I got Ron by the star of the Democrat Party, Andrew Gillum, who was later revealed to be a crackhead by having two massive rallies with tens of thousands of people. I fixed his campaign, which had fallen apart. Okay, so basically, he's taking a lot of credit for the fact that DeSantis, who just won a second term in a landslide, you know, got to be governor at all. Oh, but this is the interesting part. Then, when votes were being stolen by the corrupt election process in Broward County, and Ron was going down 10,000 votes a day, along with now Senator Rick Scott, I sent in the FBI and the U.S. attorneys, and the ballot theft immediately ended, just prior to them running out of the votes necessary to win. I stopped the election from being stolen. Now, let me just pause on that, because... The fact checkers are all saying this is BS. First of all, if he sent in the FBI, well, you could say it was legitimate if he sent in the FBI if there really was evidence of fraud. But if he sent in the FBI to save a Republican's campaign, that would be a total politicization of the Justice Department. CNN fact check. Um, Rick Scott did accuse the state's two largest counties of fraud. Trump joined in, saying, I'm sending much better lawyers to expose the fraud. Um... By the way, an 18-month investigation found no evidence of widespread fraud. Uh, there is no evidence, CNN says, that the FBI or Justice went to Florida as a result of this. I certainly never heard about it, but he did, you know, work with then Florida AG Pam Bondi and so forth, calling out this fraud, which it turns out, at least according to this investigation, was non-existent. Let me come back to this very, very long truth social post. The fake news, says Trump, asks him, DeSantis, if he's going to run, if President Trump runs. And he says, I'm only focused on the governor's race. I'm not looking into the future. Well, in terms of loyalty and class, that's really not the right answer. So the fact that DeSantis is even deflecting the question makes Trump very, very unhappy. This is just like 2015 and 16, a media assault, collusion. When Fox News fought me to the end till I won... And then they couldn't have been nicer or more supportive. The Wall Street Journal loved low-energy Jeb Bush. A succession of other people rapidly disappeared from sight as I easily knocked them out one by one. A couple of things on this. Um, First of all, Fox News is not a single entity. Some people were against Trump. Some people were for Trump. And, you know, it was long before Trump's eventual victory that a lot of certainly the conservative commentators were on board with Trump. Some were not. Um, 
it is true that Trump beat a field of 16. And by the way, if DeSantis runs and maybe, you know, you've got Nikki Haley gets in and um, uh, Mike Pence gets in and Mike Pompeo, that'd be the best thing for Trump because then it's a crowded field. And then he can easily win with a plurality. The best, the worst thing for Trump would be a one-on-one contest. All right, so you'd think he was done, but no. Here's another quote or post about the now governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, who ran a terrific campaign, didn't rely on Trump at all, uh, sort of found a path to victory as a Republican in a somewhat more moderate state, knocking off former governor Terry McAuliffe. And Trump says, young kin. He does it as two words, young kin. Now, that's an interesting take. Sounds Chinese, doesn't it? (laughs) What? In Virginia, couldn't have won without me. I endorsed him. Did a very big Trump rally for him, telephonically. Yeah, he called into some rally. Uh, You know, nobody really remembers that. Got MAGA to vote for him, or he couldn't have come close to winning. I mean, that's just not true. Glenn Youngkin won that election on his own. But he knows that and admits it. Besides, having a hard time with the Dems in Virginia, but he'll get it done. In other words, stay in Virginia, young kin. Don't even think about challenging me because he's somebody who's got his eye on 2024. And by the way, Youngkin's uh, lieutenant governor, Winsome Sears, who happens to be African-American. I saw a clip of her on TV today. And um, she just came out and said it in front of the cameras. She said... We need to move past Donald Trump. We need to move on. A lot of people, a lot of Republicans are saying that privately, but not necessarily in front of cameras. There is a real civil war going on right now. And there's also a different war between Donald Trump and much of the conservative media. Which brings me to story number two. So let me just take out a paper copy here of the Wall Street Journal, which has this editorial, Trump is the GOP's, drum roll, biggest loser, says the Wall Street Journal. Uh, You know, which has tangled with him before, very conservative editorial page. I'll just read some of this now. Uh, What will Democrats do when Donald Trump isn't around to lose elections? We have to wonder because on Tuesday, Democrats succeeded again in making the former president a central campaign issue and Trump Help them do it. Trumpy Republicans, Trumpy Republican candidates failed at the ballot box in states that were clearly winnable. That's true. Fact check, true. This can't be what Trump was envisioning ahead of his very big announcement next week. Maybe the defeats are what the party needs to hear before 2024. And it goes through a couple of the races. Uh, Trump endorsed Don Baldock. He lost to Maggie Hassan 53 to 45%. But Republican Governor Chris Sununu won by 16 points. Okay, Arizona. Trump endorsed Blake Masters, who trails Democratic Senator Mark Kelly 51 to 47 percent. This is a state where Governor Doug Ducey won by 14 points in 2018. Ducey could have won the Senate seat, but Trump pledged to go to war with him because he wouldn't endorse the 2020 fraud theories. All right, here's another one. Pennsylvania. Trump endorsed Mehmet Oz. He lost to Fetterman. John Fetterman, 51-47. Fetterman was a weak candidate. 
So Trump endorsed Oz. Goes on and on and ends by saying, maybe by now Republicans are sick and tired of losing. He's now flopped in 2018, 2020, 2021, and 2022. Now, there was a sort of a smaller version of this in the 2016 election where National Review did that against Trump um, cover story. And Trump whipped them. I mean, you know, Trump had a lot more power, maybe still has a lot more power than the conservative media. So as part of story number two, let's go to National Review. The humiliating performance by Republicans in Tuesday's midterm elections, we, we don't know how humiliating because it's still possible. It is still possible that Republicans will end up controlling both houses, but we'll get to that in the next segment has drawn renewed attention to the negative influence of Donald Trump on the GOP. It isn't merely those of us who've been consistently lamenting Trump's control of the GOP who have blamed Trump for saddling the GOP with so many subpar candidates. He's getting criticized even by some who typically like or defend him. If you're following conversations on Twitter, podcast, cable, there's definitely a water-is-now-safe quality to criticizing Trump. It feels like something different this time, says National Review. Trump's unnecessary insults at Ron DeSantis especially seem not to have sit well with people. It's no big mystery who Fox's Laura Ingram was talking about when she said, if the voters conclude that you're putting your own ego or your own grudges ahead of what's good for the country, they're going to look elsewhere, period. When it comes to prominent figures lining up against Trump, we've seen this movie before, after the Capitol riot and also in the early stages of 2016. But Trump's power, this is sort of a reality check, has never derived from praise he's earned among conservative influencers or Republicans holding or seeking office. His influence has always derived from his passionate and devoted followers who cheer for him and direct their anger at anybody who he decides to make his enemy. And we haven't heard from them yet. In other words, until Trump is rejected by actual Republican voters, then he will lose influence every place else. It's just premature to know whether the ground has really shifted. I mean, this is the whole I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue argument. And it's true. I mean, you know, I hear from people like that every hour. If I, I mean, even when I'm saying, hey, you know, what Trump said was kind of true. But, you know, if you don't, if you haven't completely drunk the Kool-Aid, they slam you. And that's okay. They have every right to do it. But National Review was right. You know, National Review and lots of people on Fox and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, could all decide to turn against Trump, and it would not matter. Here's, here's Matthew Cottonetti. He's with the Washington Free Beacon. He has an op-ed piece in the New York Times He's, you know, works with AEI and he's, you know, a significant intellectual figure in the movement on the right. Even if a new standard bearer has now more widespread appeal, that's talking about Governor DeSantis, the party must still move beyond Trump. Trump will have a say in that too. He may not allow the Republican Party to disenthrall itself from him without a costly fight, that's for sure. For conservatives, this is a fight worth having. Since his takeover of the party in 2016, Trump's GOP has lost the House, the White House, and the Senate. 
if Republicans do end up taking both houses of Congress right now, it won't be because of Trump, but despite him. There may be a silent majority of normie Americans open to Republican leadership, but those voters, says Continetti, run in the other direction at the first sight of Trump and his most devoted supporters. Gingrich saw that, this is back in 94, I guess, that his party's interests were best served under different leadership. Trump sees no interest but his own. He is the chief obstacle to a Republican revival. And there's an interesting statistic in this that says the Republican Party, Republican presidential nominees, have won the popular vote only once in 34 years. I mean, I kind of smacked my head and said, is that right? And of course it is. Well, you know, I think that would be George W. Bush in 2004 because Trump won the presidency, lost the popular vote. Bush in 2000 won the presidency, lost the popular vote. And then in the years when Democrats win the presidency, Republicans lose the popular vote. It's just kind of an eye-catching figure there. Anyway, only by recognizing this, says Continetti, will the party have a chance to purge some of the poison that is in the system. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. And by the way, President Biden was on TV yesterday touting a reduction in the inflation rate down to 7.7%. That's still quite high. There's no question about it. It's better than a plus percent. Um, and of course, the president's going to, he says his agenda is working, take credit for it. The stock market jumped about a thousand points yesterday. So happy with that news because the stock market is always looking to trends ahead. Um, if that figure, if that report had come out a few days earlier, maybe the Democrats would have picked up one or two more house seats or maybe not. But it's some good news. It's further good news for President Biden after, uh, of course, the Democrats not getting buried by a red wave. So story number three, Washington Post says Democrats were cautiously optimistic that Senator Kelly's, uh, Senator Mark Kelly's lead would hold in Arizona and in Nevada, where Senator Catherine Cortez Masto is trailing, they think that mail ballots from urban areas will help them catch up. Some Republicans privately agreed that their candidates could lose. And so... Thursday night brought more unfavorable numbers for GOP Senate nominees Blake Masters in Arizona, a guy totally created and backed by Trump, and Adam Laxalt in Nevada, who actually was up, but the margin narrowed a little bit. I want to overstate it. But if you look at Nevada, uh, Cortez Masto, the Democrat, the incumbent, was behind Laxalt by fewer than 9,000 votes this morning. That's a much smaller margin than she had faced. With 90% of the ballots counted, Democrats and independent analysts say they expect the ballots that haven't been counted yet to favor Cortez Masto. But we have to see what the margin is. It all gets, it's like nine-dimensional chess. Um, in Arizona, Mark Kelly won the latest batch of Maricopa County mail ballots by 13 points. That doesn't seem like a huge margin extending his statewide lead over Blake Masters to nearly six percentage points. Masters' chances of winning depend on an overwhelming margin among voters who dropped off their mail ballots on election day, not who voted necessarily same day, but
but dropped off their mail ballots. So the Dems seem to feel a little more confident. We don't know. If the Dems take both of those, then the Georgia runoff has nothing to do with Senate control. If it's a split, then the Georgia runoff has everything to do with Senate control. Here's an, you know, now that the media, as I've talked about in the last couple of days, completely botched the red wave, the red tsunami, all of that. Here's a New York Times analysis. Okay, now we'll tell you what really happened. Um, the results were, were different, says this piece, and it's interesting. Historically, as we all know, if you follow politics, the president's party is almost always trounced in the midterm, especially the first midterm, uh, especially with a president with an approval rating below 50. So you look at this and the piece says Barack, Donald, Bill Clinton, George W., their parties all lost in landslides when their approval ratings were mired in the low to mid-40s, which is where Biden is today. But here's the split. It was geographic, and that's interesting. Republicans fared exceptionally well in some states, including Florida and New York, which is counterintuitive. In others like Michigan or Pennsylvania, Democrats excelled. So why is that? Two unusual issues, democracy and abortion. These issues were driven by the actions of the party out of power. I mean, that almost never happens. The party out of power achieved the most important policy success of the last two years, overturning of Roe v. Wade. Now, abortion rights might not be seen as under immediate threat in many blue states, so there maybe it wasn't as much of a driver. In states where democracy and abortion were less directly at issue, the typical midterm dynamics took hold and Republicans did really well. But in Pennsylvania, for example, Republicans nominated a candidate for governor, Doug Mastriano, who was central to the state's effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election results. Democrats were worried that a Mastriano victory could risk a constitutional crisis and a threat to Democratic government. And also, Mastriano happened to be a strident opponent of abortion, and Republicans in Pennsylvania control that state, legis- that state legislature. So that would explain why Democratic AG Josh Shapiro just absolutely trounced Mastriano. He wasn't just he wasn't a very good candidate, and he was seen as very extreme in a state where those two issues, election denialism and abortion rights, were huge. Those issues were less critical in New York. And it just, you know, crime was a big issue in New York, particularly in New York City and around New York City. That's why, even though in the end, Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul won comfortably, but, you know, Lee Zeldin, the congressman, got up to, what was it, 47%? That's pretty big for a Republican running for governor of New York. It's usually not even close. And then there were these other uh, precincts or congressional districts, I should say, where, for instance, Sean Patrick Maloney, the head of the Democratic House Campaign Committee, lost his seat. He may have done a good job with the campaign committee, but he himself got ousted. So New York, the New York media crime, uh, brought us to a slightly different outcome. So I don't think we'll know by the weekend, given the embarrassingly slow pace of vote counting, but we may know by early next week, whether or not there's a split in Nevada and Arizona or whether the Dems take both. And if the Dems take both, then they're at 50, which means worst case scenario, 
They still control the Senate on the same, you know, ridiculously razor-thin margin that they do today because Kamala Harris would break any tie. The Democrats would certainly like a little breathing room if they could pick up one more seat. So for them, maybe the Georgia runoff, Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock, would really matter. But it wouldn't matter ultimately for control. I'm not predicting that. That's where things stand. I am certainly tired of turning on the TV and seeing these same graphics. I mean, you had a little bit of movement, little bit of movement, especially in Arizona. But again, a lot more votes to come. All right, number four, Elon Musk. It is pretty bad. And I'm someone who says, give the guy a chance. He just took it over. You know, he wants everything to happen yesterday, et cetera. So here's the Washington Post. Several top executives resigned from Twitter yesterday, and these were key executives. Some of them citing fears of the risks over Musk's leadership. And that prompted federal regulators to warn they might step in. So let me explain. Yoel Roth, I had originally thought, mistakenly, that he was like a Musk confidant. But he had been, for about seven years, the head of moderation and safety. He was the guy who did this long post, I'm sure with Musk's approval, saying we haven't changed the content moderation policies of the old Twitter one bit, and we're not going to. Well, he decided to quit. And he wasn't the only one. The chief information security officer quit. The chief privacy officer quit. The chief compliance officer quit, according to sources cited by the Washington Post. And that was sort of a vote of no confidence in Musk. So that led the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, to issue an unusual warning. And this was, again, 24 hours after President Biden, mistakenly in my view, said there should be federal scrutiny of Musk's relationship with other countries, including Saudi Arabia. Anyway, um, FTC says tracking the developments at Twitter with deep concern. And this is why. Because there is a consent decree with the Federal Trade Commission, it goes back more than 10 years. This way precedes Elon. And now the FTC is concerned about the things that the uh, Twitter agreed to do as part of that court consent decree. So uh, Elon came out and said, I can't emphasize enough. We're going to do everything to adhere to the letter and spirit of the FTC consent decree. Anything you read to the contrary is absolutely false. One employee, quoted anonymously, had actually been retained after the layoffs, but decided to quit anyway, uh, tells the Washington Post, I am ethically not okay with making the richest person in the world even richer. Also not okay with this alpha dog mentality. It's already trickling down. Well, you know, this richest person thing means this person just doesn't like Elon Musk. Are you okay working at Facebook, making zillionaire Mark Zuckerberg richer? He's a lot less rich than he was before his stock lost, you know, 70% of his value. Are you okay working for Amazon and Jeff Bezos? I mean, clearly it's just a personal thing with this particular person. Now, New York Times has this deep dive about what's happened in the last two weeks, and it is pretty chilling stuff. It says, according to 36 current and former Twitter employees and people close to the company, as well as internal documents, uh, that's the intimidation paragraph. That's telling other media outlets, don't even try to match this story. We have worked our butts off. Okay. Some top executives were fired summarily by email. One engineering manager who had been told to be the lead person cutting hundreds of workers 
promptly vomited into a trash can. Okay, that sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? What? Others slept in the office to work the grueling schedules to meet Musk's deadlines. I mean, Musk is a guy who, like, get this done yesterday, right? So Elon Musk tapped a product manager named Esther Crawford to revamp the subscription service, now called Twitter Blue. He wanted a new version, which would cost $8 a month, as you've heard, and include premium features and the verification checkmark. By the way, a lot of people are kind of wondering about this verification process because you know who's been verified? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is now a verified member. This must be news, right? Of the Twitter blue subscription service. Doesn't exactly inspire confidence. So Musk had a deadline. The team had to finish the Twitter blue changes by November 7th. That was the day before the midterms or its members will be fired. Now, how is that for anxiety producing edicts? You got to do this. You got to do this by this date, which is a ridiculously short period of time, or you're canned. I don't know. That wouldn't increase my stress level. How about you? So this woman, Esther Crawford, shared a photo of herself sleeping at the San Francisco offices. She was in a sleeping bag and an eye mask with the hashtag sleep well you work. Well, some of her colleagues did not like that. They wondered in private chats why they should commit long hours working for a man who could fire them. According to five people in messages seen by the Times, she responded to what she called hecklers by saying she'd also received lots of supportive messages from other entrepreneurs. Anyway, this is also not exactly confidence-inspiring. By last Saturday, Musk's advisors realized the cuts may have been too deep, according to four sources. Some asked laid-off engineers, designers, and product managers to return to their old jobs. At Goldbird, now Twitter has these, I didn't know this, Twitter had these sections like Bluebird, Redbird, and there's also Goldbird. Goldbird is the revenue division. The company had to bring back those who ran key money-generating products that no one else knows how to operate. People with knowledge of the business said. So that's where you kind of just like, okay, we're firing this person, this person, this person, this person. But... How do we get into the bathroom? Because I don't know who had the key. Well, these people ran, uh, were in charge of products that actually brought in money. They got fired and no one else knew how to do it. One manager agreed to try rehiring some laid off workers, but expressed concerns that they were, quote, weak, lazy, unmotivated, and they may even be against an Elon Twitter. And to top it all off, Musk uh, made plans for employees to pay for lunch, which had been free at the company cafeteria. Well, you know, maybe there's no such thing as a free lunch or a free lunch that goes on forever. So you could say they had a nice sweet deal and then I could pay for their own lunch. It sounds like pretty petty stuff to worry about when you've just spent $44 billion, when Twitter has $13 billion in debt. I mean, look, I think he's got a short window to turn this around because if advertisers start bailing, um, if Jesus Christ doesn't like it, <laughs> um, if more of these horror stories hit the press, if there's problems with the FTC, um, you know, it's fine to throw a lot of spaghetti at the wall. And as I've said, you know, Elon has said, look, we're going to do a lot of dumb stuff. But, and I said, you know, I said this on Martha McCallum's show yesterday. Dumb stuff is fine if you get rid of the dumb stuff pretty quickly and keep the smart stuff. 
But this is pretty worrisome. I mean, look, I don't underestimate Elon Musk. I'm sure he made mistakes building Tesla into what it is today. I'm sure he made mistakes building SpaceX into what it is today. But does he know anything enough about Twitter and social media and the compromises you have to make? You know, I said it's like it's like a candidate running for office. You make campaign promises. We're going to have free speech. We're not going to put up with all this, you know, these rules and regulations. And then the candidate wins and the candidate has to govern. And governing in the real world is like, hey, I guess we need some content moderation. Otherwise, we're going to scare everybody off. That's the way it works in politics. And I think in this instance... That's the way it works in business. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Well, before we head into the weekend, I'm going to make story five number again. Jennifer Aniston, because in this interview with Allure magazine, I talked about some of it yesterday with, you know, no more movie stars, but more important and more personally, she reveals or provides new details about how she tried to get pregnant for many years. Uh, Jennifer says it was a, hard, a challenging road, the baby making road. Um, she talked about trying to have a baby, including all the media scrutiny and unsuccessful rounds of in vitro fertilization. I didn't know that. Um, the piece says, well, the rest of us don't have to face the kind of painful speculation Aniston was up against. But, you know, the success rates for IVF are 25% for maternal ages 38 to 40, 12% for ages 41 to 42 uh, Jennifer says, my late 30s, 40s, I'd gone through some really hard S. And it, if it wasn't going to be, f- if I wasn't going through that, I never would have become who I was meant to be. I was trying to get pregnant. Remember the many, many years that Aniston was subject to a tabloid bump watch? I was, she says, I was going through IVF, drinking Chinese teas, you name it. I was throwing everything at it. I would have given anything if someone had said to me, freeze your eggs. Do yourself a favor. You just don't think it. So here I am today. The ship has sailed. I have zero regrets, says Jennifer Aniston, now 53. I actually feel a little relief because now there's no more can I? Maybe, maybe, maybe. I don't have to think about that anymore. Uh, But she says, you know, she was pained by all these does Jen have a baby bum headlines. The narrative, she says, was I was just selfish. I just cared about my career. And God forbid a woman is successful and doesn't have a child. And the reason my husband left me while we broke up and ended our marriage was because I wouldn't give him a kid. It was absolute lies. This is painful to read. I don't have anything to hide at this point. Aniston's five-year marriage to Brad Pitt ended in 2005. She was with Justin Thoreau from 2011 to 2018. They got married in 2015. So look, she has a great career. career. She's an icon from France. She's got the... Apple TV show, The Morning Show. And she tried. She tried hard under the tabloid glare to have a baby, and it didn't work out. Now I'm seeing stories in the Washington Post and elsewhere about IVF. It sparked this whole, well, this is what IVF is, and this is how you do it, and this is what the odds are, and so forth. And maybe in that sense, you know, when a celebrity has gone through something or has gone through something, that becomes um, fodder for the education of other people who might be interested. Well, with that... It's time to let you get back to whatever you were doing. Thank you for joining. Hope you have a great weekend. Very much looking forward to Media Buzz. Hope you'll join us there as well. We're back here Monday with more Buzz Meter. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.